Alright, first thing, I'm gonna get that back on. There we go, that feels better. I feel better with this ring on. It's so precious to me. But not as precious as a child. Wonderful segue, right? But I mean that sincerely. I wonder if my appreciation of this episode has gone up since I have since, you know, had the opportunity to help raise my niece, for example. Because <sighs> as I've said many times, that really changes, changed, I guess, my perspective on a lot of things in life. This episode is part of a three-part filler thing, where it's not really connected to any substantial things, story-wise, or with regards to the overall threads of recurring elements, or the Dominion War, or the spiritual plot, or any of the, you know, the, the, the tangible, intangible, thematic consequences. No, 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 it's just, we need 26 episodes, go. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, it's worth noting. It's just, for the longest time, I usually skipped these three episodes when I would rewatch this show. All three of them. Um, now, Prophet and Lace, you could see why I would skip that one. But having gone back through this one, I really do appreciate it a lot more. Especially since I have since learned that it was supposed to be Alexander, not Molly. Oh, not DS9's Alexander. Uh, TNG's. <laughs> this is apparently a way to write Alexander off the show. Although, that was said with a bit of a comedic tint in the interview, so that might not be, like, literally true. But I have to admit, well, I've said this before, the writers of both shows have never known what to do with Alexander. It's been a consistent problem for years, since season three of TNG. That is a long time with them not knowing to, not to, what to do with that character. So, personally, I could believe they were thinking about just writing him out of the show. Lord knows they have effectively written him out of this show at this point, since he's joined the KDF and he's going off and doing it his own thing, completely separate from his dad. Anyways, <clears throat> well, we needed a bottle show, although this episode doesn't quite qualify, because they do have several location shoots and they do have a guest star, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, they did want to do a sci-fi-y kind of a tint, though. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I know this. That's, that sounds so strange to say that. I know some people think that Star Trek should move away from more long-term thematic and literally connected contiguous storytelling and should move more towards, you know, what's the weird thing of the week. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a valid perspective. And, you know, I know and appreciate several people who have given me those arguments and discussions over the years. Obviously, I'm on the opposite side of that fence. I prefer... You know, the, the, the Romulan build-up in TNG. I prefer the ex exploration of the characters. I prefer, you know, the Dominion, and, and so forth and so on. But, that being stated, I'm fine with a good sci-fi-y plot, as long as it makes a degree of sense. Now, let me ask you something. How ridiculous do the circumstances have to line up for this episode to happen? It's pretty ridiculous. I'll just go ahead and jump ahead there. They have to lose sight of Molly. Okay, that's kind of believable. I mean, you know, I, I could see that happening. They need Molly then needs to end up in the cave. Okay. Then she needs to slip and fall. Okay. So far we're still in the realm of believable. Although each step is another roll of the dice, so to speak. Then the place where she slips and falls has to happen to be falling into a portal in time, which is currently open and active. What? Now, here's where it gets even funnier. Because in addition to that, 
they then have to immediately follow through with this by the fact that they can't go through after her. Now that's important because for the construction of this, you zoom out for a second, for the construction of this event, they need a child to unknowingly travel through time and then a skilled engineer adult to not be able to. Otherwise he'd just go right back in and save her and there's no actual episode, right? Well, obviously they don't explain any of this. I do actually have a headcanon theory, though, that kind of lines up here. For this to work, what would have had to have happened is someone had to use this time portal from this end at some point going back to this point in the past or at, to, like, a relative equivalent point in the past. In other words, the, both time, like, the if you think of this as where the time where the portal is and where the destination is, both are moving forward in time equally, which is a relative concept that I could at least swallow even though the episode doesn't quite bother that up. But anyways, point being, <clears throat> so someone had to have gone through this portal, and because they're through the portal, they can't turn it off on the other end. So they're just kind of stuck there, or maybe they were fleeing there or something, right? So the idea here is that the portal's been open and active for however many years at this point, somehow undiscovered. Let's just ignore that for a second. And also, readily accessible just inside a cave that's in an open park that's regularly frequented by people. I know, we're getting more and more unlikely as we go. And thus the portal was just sitting there open. Molly goes through it, and after she goes through it, the energy the portal uses to actually send someone through it was a little bit too much and was basically the final straw. I mean, imagine if your phone is at, you know, 0.1% battery and you're like, I'm going to open YouTube. Kaklonk! That kind of idea. This, of course, then leads to O'Brien having to get it working again, not getting it working quite correctly, and then dragging her back through the portal. Uh, ten years hence, or something like that? We gotta do a lot of dodging around to make that happen, and I just wanted to acknowledge all that, because the premise of this episode's ridiculous. Now, whether the cloud effect applies here or not depends entirely on whether or not you think this is a good episode, since that's the entire point of the cloud effect. Now... <clears throat> I do have to say a couple things here. She starts to freak out, and Bashir sedates her immediately. That's actually surprisingly smart, because that's actually what you should do medically in that situation. That, 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 yeah. So there's no way to talk about this episode without talking about the concept of feral children. That is indeed the premise. Feral children are unfortunately a thing that has happened in real life, and... I'm going to say something that's going to sound weird. I urge you to not research it, to not look it up. It's not pleasant. It's not engaging. It's not curiosity-filling. It's horrible. I looked into this because my aunt, who's a nurse, had to deal with a feral child once in her life, and she told me some um, rather unpleasant stories about that experience. And as a consequence, you know, you know, me and my general interest in medical things, I decided to go ahead and look it up and talk with her about it for a while. And it, it's pretty messed. It's pretty messed. Now, I bring that up because this episode and the writers thereof actually did their homework in several elements of feral children, on the psychology of it and the nature of it, uh, the anthropomorphizing, on the inability to speak properly, but at the same time attempting to communicate vocally. She was, she doesn't know how to formulate words specifically, but she does know how to make sounds, and thus is actually attempting to communicate, just in a very, very different way, 
which brings me to the next part, the fact that this person has been so accustomed to not having regular in individuals to... See, I, I said communicator. I probably should take that back because it's not really communication in the strictest sense of the word. And not like we think of it. It's more like verbal interaction, which I know sounds like communication, but the point of communication is to communicate to and from or to in order to try and have some kind of dialogue, whether, you know, there's many different ways to communicate. Um, what she's doing is more like an animal or, you know, actually making a growl or a hiss, trying to get across a concept, but not really trying to specifically speak to the thing they're speaking to. If, if that makes any sense. It's, it's a more basic level concept. Uh, kind of like how a baby, when a baby cries, the baby isn't literally saying, you know, I currently need to have my diaper changed, could you please change it? The baby is just aware of the fact that there's something wrong and therefore is automatically responding to that verbally. It's, it's, a, it's a different level of cognition. There's a lot of little things like that in this episode. Um, and the sedation thing is one of those things. It's really messed up. Now, what's also kind of interesting is they present the dilemma right at the beginning of the episode. Well, let's just send her back and fix her. They immediately veto that. No, no, that would destroy this person. I'm going to say something very callous. So, ignoring the obvious fact that that is what happens at the end of the episode, that person in front of them is not a person anymore. I'm sorry to say it that way. Now, that person might have the potential to become a person with very careful and considerate effort across years. Because what effectively has to happen is the elder Molly now has to grow up. She's basically been reverted back to the state of being a child without the advantage of needing the physical elements of being a child. What I mean by that is she has to learn at a disadvantage from a regular human child. She has to go through the same process with none of the benefits in order to develop into what we refer to as sentience and sapience. She is effectively an animal at this point, with baseline intellect and nothing else. Now, I don't mean to sound mean, but my point is, that's kind of horrible. Wouldn't it be much more acceptable to go ahead and send her back and bring the original Molly back, so that the same process that she'll have to go through, she can go through now and lose the ten years of trauma and horribleness? Right? I, I, please tell me I'm not the only one thinking that. I mean, be honest, as always. It's just, that was my first knee-jerk reaction. Even as a parent, I would say that. Or as an uncle, in my case. But you get the idea. So the dilemma's just thrown aside. Um, and I only have a few little notes about the rest of the episode, because it just kind of runs through the bases that I've already talked to you about. It, it, don't mistake me. They do a good job. They showcase how Molly is a feral child. That's part of the problem, though. There's no... O'Brien and, and Keiko are deluded in thinking that they're going to be able to reach out to this girl over the course of days or weeks. This is going to be a year's thing. And they are legitimately putting everything at risk by exposing her in the manner that they are doing. Even the trip to the holodeck, knowing that it was a temporary matter, was a very, frankly, stupid thing to do. The fact that O'Brien just shut it off shows how little he understands what he's dealing with. Now again, you could say that's the point. 
that that Keiko and O'Brien legitimately do not cognate what they're dealing with. And I'm not saying that they're stupid. I'm saying that it's entirely possible that's the point, that they can't bring themselves to acknowledge and accept the truth. This is, of course, then the course of the episode, the, the path that they go through, O'Brien especially. I'm actually tearing up a little bit thinking about it because do you know what it takes to be willing to do what O'Brien and, and Keiko do at the end of this episode? Do you really? I'm not sure I could have done that. And I know myself <laughs> pretty well, you know? But to be willing to give up their child forever so that she can go back to live the life that she knows, that's horrifying and wrong. Sorry to jump into the middle of this emotional impact, but as much as there is an emotional beat to the episode, unfortunately, it remains stupid. Because that is definitively the incorrect choice here. Molly is someone who needs careful attention, guidance, and time. Years of effort and work by experts who are willing to reach out to her and know how to react to her. O'Brien talks about, oh, you're just going to take her off to a center. Yes! Yes! She needs to be taken off to specialists who know what they're doing. She needs to be taken to people who are going to approach her as what she is, not what you want her to be. This is a very delicate situation. It actually kind of pisses me off that O'Brien and Keiko are totally just against the idea of effectively sending their child off to get help and instead are okay with sending her back to a non-life to be alone for the rest of forever on the thing. It is only by sheer circumstance that Elder Molly then finds the Younger Molly, because they had the portal wrong, and sends Younger Molly back through. By the way, while we're on the subject, do you think she knew? Honest question. Because there's really only two ways this works, and both have their own narrative potential. Either the elder Molly knew she was sending the younger Molly through to go home without any understanding of what that meant, or she, in total ignorance, helped a complete stranger to go home without any understanding of what that meant. And it does change the tone of it either way. Because either way... Eh, I always screw that up in my first one. Either way, she's gone. Or, more accurately, she never was. And thus the dilemma that they basically didn't present at the beginning of the episode is suddenly solved because Molly herself is the one that did it. Our hands are, t our hands are clean. Didn't have to bloody our hands by erasing someone from time again because they already did that this season. Or last season, excuse me, last season. Yeah. I have a couple of other tidbits here. You know, Odo helping was nice. Uh, her insistence on going home and them having no idea what that meant. Yeah. The fact that they're trying to maintain an everyday life while this is going on. Yeah. Uh, the fact that she freaks out and starts attacking people out of sheer manic panic. Yeah. I do like at the end that... Uh, not Quark. O'Brien briefly mentions the fact that he still has to go to a hearing and he's still there's still some kind of a trial. Just a nice little touch. It'll never mean anything. But it is nice to see that there's some consequences for his action. There shouldn't have been, but whatever. I actually like the B-plot of this episode a lot, by the way, since I'm basically done talking about the A-plot. 
This is funny to me because the B plot is a perfect example of one of the things Star Trek does surprisingly regularly. Oh crap, we're low on time. Um, okay, let's throw together a story about Worf and, and, and Dax. Okay, cool. And it's awesome. <laughs> like, for the most part, most of the time when there's this kind of filler in the middle of an episode, Star Trek has a weird habit of getting it right. And usually it's good stuff. I mean, the poker game over on TNG, you know? In fact, there's, there's the boxing episode in Voyager, and I'm sure there's another one, but I can't think of any other example where they get filler completely wrong. I'm, sh I'm sure there are examples, I just can't think of them off the top of my head. Anyways, so Worf... <laughs> so first, Worf smiles. He says, no, this, what is this child doing here? But actually, he's grinning when he says that. And Worf tries really hard to be a good parent, a good father, and he tries really, good, really hard to take care of this kid. Now, I like that. Not only because Worf is a determined kind of a person, but more to the point, because Worf has determined that this is something his wife wants. And that he wants. He never says that. He says he's doing it to prove himself to Jadzia. But honest to God, when he talks about failing Alexander, we are reminded of the fact that he has already failed as a parent. He wants to do this because he wants to be a good father. Because he wants to be there for a child. Because he wants to, to, to do better now that he has another chance to do so. He failed with Alexander. He's not going to fail again. That is a very Worf mentality, and I love it. I love the enthusiasm and the power with which he endures it. In fact, one of my favorite parts is he is so demanding of himself that he makes one mistake debatably. It could be argued he wasn't actually making a mistake at all. But he makes one mistake, which gets the child barely injured, and he just shuts down. I have completely failed, and I am very sorry. It then takes Dax to be like, look. No. Gung, gung, gung. <laughs> and then Worf is like, wow. Maybe we can make this work after all. I'm sure Worf and Jadzia will have a long and prosperous marriage. <laughs> Next week, we'll talk about another filler episode, which I, I, by memory I like. So we'll see what I think of it this time around next time.